Amen. Take a Bible out. Find the book of Colossians. There is an outline in your bulletin. You can track along with the message. This morning, we are moving from Colossians chapter 1 into Colossians chapter 2. So the chapter number is changing, but the dominant theme of this book is the same throughout the entirety of the book. The book of Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we saw this back in chapter 1 in verse 18. The English Standard Version says that in everything he might be preeminent. The New International Version, I believe, says that in everything he might be supreme. Some Bible translations say that in all things he might be first place. We're talking about the absolute unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ when we talk about the book of Colossians. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. He is the Lord of the church. He is unique, and he alone sits on the throne of the universe, which is what we just sang about. Is anyone in all of the cosmos worthy to break the seal of human history and to unfold the story of human history? And the only one who is worthy is Jesus Christ. That's central to our passage this morning. And our passage is in the middle of what you could call an autobiographical section in the book of Colossians. It's Colossians 1.24 to two cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 5, and it's a section of the book where Paul uses the first-person singular pronoun over and over and over and over again. So in the first part of Colossians, he mostly uses the pronoun we, first-person plural pronoun, we, and he's talking about him and Timothy. But in this section, he specifically switches to I, and he says it over and over again, I, I, I. Chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. He's speaking autobiographically about his ministry, his calling as a minister of the gospel. And starting next week, when we get to chapter 2, verse 6, the dominant form of address is from Paul to the church. So it's a you you, the church in Colossae, and by implication, you, the church at Emmanuel. So this is an autobiographical section where Paul's talking about his calling as a minister of the gospel. And as a minister of the gospel, the message that Paul proclaims is the mystery of God. The mystery of God. Now, we referenced this last week. When Paul used the word mystery, he's talking about part of God's redemptive plan, the plan of redemption that had been fully revealed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I gave you all sorts of verses. You can look up this word mystery and get a feel, a sense for what this word means in the Bible and what it means when Paul uses it. Paul's not talking about some puzzle or riddle or thing that no one can figure out. Sometimes we use the word mystery in that sense. Paul's not talking about a genre of novel or TV show or movie. He's not talking about a murder mystery, a a whodunit type mystery. He's talking about a piece of God's plan of redemption, the plan that God came up with in eternity past and that began to unfold in the Garden of Eden through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the promises to David, through the prophets, all the way up to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That mystery, all of the specifics about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that weren't fully revealed, only partially revealed, only hinted at, have now been made clear in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the mystery that Paul proclaimed. 
Now, we're gonna circle back to that in just a little bit. This is the big idea of our passage, chapter two, verse one, two, three, four, and five. Christians should rejoice when they hear about the spiritual growth of God's people. Within your own family, when you see spiritual growth, you should rejoice. In your Sunday school class, when you see somebody have a a breakthrough of sorts or mature in certain ways, you should rejoice. In our church, when you see spiritual growth taking place, you should rejoice. When you look at a church across town or across the street and you see people who are growing spiritually, as we're going to talk about this morning, that should move you to rejoice. That word rejoice is what Paul builds up to in this passage. You see it in verse 5 where he says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Everything he's saying in this passage builds up to that. Paul is rejoicing to see spiritual growth in the church in Colossae, something that we ought to rejoice over. So look in your copy of the scriptures. Let's read this passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Paul says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, uh, we're grateful for an opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to celebrate who he is and all that he's accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we pray this morning as we think about what Paul wanted for the church in Colossae. It's ultimately what you want for your churches. Lord, our prayer is simply that these things would be true of us at Emmanuel. So we pray that your spirit would take your word and apply it to the lives and the hearts and the minds of your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. After living through the last 18 months, which we've all done, I think one of the things that we've learned is that free speech is important. You may not always like it, but it's important. And when you don't like it, that's the point where it's important. That's why it's important. Free speech and the ability to say what we think is an important thing. With that said... I would like to propose that we as a society ban at least four phrases. I've heard them enough, and I think you've heard them enough. Number one, we're all in this together. Let's not say it anymore. No one's in anything together, so we should just pretending like we're all in in this together. Out of an abundance of caution, in these uncertain times, because of unprecedented circumstances, we have said those things over and over and over again. You can almost see the politician or the business owner or whoever getting up and uh, reading something or writing something. You can just see these phrases spilling out. That's what we do as human beings. We latch on to certain phrases and we just say them over and over and over again to the point where they just completely lose any meaning. We are not very creative people. We hear somebody say, say one thing, we say, oh, I like how they said that. And then we all just follow along and say the same thing. You know this is true. This afternoon, 
when you're watching the Dallas Cowboys and it's the third quarter and they're up by like 45, they're winning, the game's in hand, you're gonna get bored, you're gonna get on social media, you're gonna start scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you're gonna find people saying these things. This is about the entirety of social media. I don't know who needs to hear this, but... And then they fill in the blank with something that they think everybody needs to hear. I'm asking for a friend. I'm just going to leave this right here. Or the shortened version, this. I'm going to share a post. I'm going to share a picture. I'm going to share a meme. I'm going to share an article. I'm going to share a video. And I'm just going to say this. And you are to read that word, this, and know that I agree with this. And I think you should agree with this. We just shortened it to the word this. Once more for people in the back, or people say, say it a little louder, For the people in the back, we're not very creative. We all say that. I'm not crying, you're crying. And then the one I really love the most, the struggle is real. People post that all the time on social media. Some of you are provocateurs and you're gonna get on social media and you're gonna post something that says the struggle is real and you're gonna tag me in it (laughs) and I'm going to unfriend you and block you from my social media. I don't want nothing to do with that, at least for one day. The struggle is real. We say this over and over and over again. If you just do a quick Google search for the phrase, the struggle is real, you'll find a lot of serious, at least intending to be serious articles that in the headline, major news media saying the struggle is real is real. And some of them are on sports websites and they're talking about all the rookie quarterbacks who are having a hard time adjusting to the NFL and say the struggle is real for these rookie NFL quarterbacks. Sometimes they talk about healthcare workers who are dealing with the ongoing effects of all the craziness in the world and they say for healthcare healthcare workers the struggle is real. Or they talk about businesses that are dealing with different things in the economy and they say the struggle is real for business owners. I found a lot of articles about people who wanted to retire, but because of the nature of the economy and life right now, they just didn't know if they could or should do it. And they said this struggle is real for people who want to retire. Usually when you and I use this phrase on social media, we use it in a lighthearted way. We're not trying to be serious usually. We're actually trying to be funny or cute or something like that. So a college student will get on social media and they'll say, I don't know what to do. Should I binge Netflix or should I study for finals tomorrow? The struggle is real. I'm just completely at a loss of what to do. Or somebody will get on there and say, should I go off of my diet? I've been doing so good. Or should I eat the entire tub of Bluebell ice cream? It's going to be one or the other. I can't decide what to do. The struggle is real. And we sort of just use it tongue-in-cheek, and we're sort of sarcastic. We use it in a lighthearted way. We live in the first world. Let's be honest. We don't have a whole lot of struggles in life compared to people who live in the developing world or third world countries or whatever you want to call those places. We don't have a ton of struggles, most of us. And so we use that phrase, the struggle is real, just to sort of say, hey, My life's really easy, but here's something I'm not quite sure what to do. The struggle is real. So we use it in a trivial way. Look at Colossians 2. Paul's not being trivial at all when he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Paul struggled greatly for the churches that he planted and 
for the churches that he never visited and that were planted as an indirect result of his ministry, churches that he had never even visited. Colossae was one of those churches that Paul never even visited. He had not been to this town. He did not start this church. Look at verse one. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He doesn't mean it in a lighthearted way. How great a struggle I have for those of you at Laodicea and those who have not seen me face to face. He says it again in verse five. I'm absent in body. I'm with you in spirit. I'm with you in spirit, but I'm not there with you. What he's saying is, for two and a half years, Paul lived in Ephesus. He traveled around, he went to Ephesus, and the Lord basically put the brakes on his ministry and said, Paul, I want you to stay right here in Ephesus for two and a half years. He was preaching and he was teaching and he was making disciples. The Bible says that at the end of that two and a half years, the entire province of Asia, it's what we would call Turkey, today, the nation of Turkey, that entire Roman province had heard the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul stayed put in Ephesus over on the left, but down all of these roads and through all of these mountainous areas, Paul was sending people out. He was teaching people and training people, and then he was sending them out to share the gospel and to start churches. And that's what happened in these three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Three sister cities. Paul didn't go to this place. It was called the Lycus Valley. The Lycus River ran through there. He didn't go there. He stayed in Ephesus, but he sent people out to preach the word. And he wants those churches to know. This is the point of this part of the passage. He said, I want you to know how much I have struggled for your spiritual growth. He's not using that phrase lightly or tritely like we do. He's saying, I have been genuinely struggling for you. I know that I haven't been to see you. We've not met face to face. But I have struggled for you. That word struggle, if you have your Bible open, you can look at Colossians 1.29. It's the same word in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling. He's struggling it's the Greek verb agon, A-G-O-N. It's where we get the word agony. He's agonizing on behalf of these churches. He is struggling on behalf of these churches. He is risking his life to travel the world and to share the good news about Jesus Christ with people who haven't heard. He's staying in a city like Ephesus, where his character was slandered and mobs were regularly raised against him and other Christians. Paul had an instinct, a gut-level instinct. I gotta get out of Ephesus. It's not safe here. It's not dangerous here. God said, I want you to stay right here. Don't leave. There's work to do and you're gonna struggle and you're gonna toil and you're gonna agonize for these churches. This struggling is the kind of thing that Paul did in a place like Lystra where he went into town and he preached the gospel and they drug Paul out of town and they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead and they left him for dead and then Paul got back up and went back into the town to keep talking about Jesus. He's struggling for the gospel. He's praying for his churches 
without ceasing. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when the Jews are coming right behind him, slandering him and ruining his reputation. He's going around the Roman Empire like a beggar asking for money to take it for famine relief back in Jerusalem, all for the sake of the gospel. He's struggling in all of these ways. The question is, why? What's the end game in Paul's mind? He's struggling for these churches. What does he actually want to see happen in these churches? The ones that he has visited, the ones that he's planted, and the ones like Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis that he has not visited. We're going to get to the biblical answer in our passage. I just want you to use some sanctified, Holy Spirit-restrained imagination. And I want to propose something to you. If I were to go back here to the back of the stage and bring out a box and open that box and pull out a lamp, like an Aladdin lamp, genie in a lamp, and I were to say to you, I have found the magical church genie in a lamp, and I have it. And we're going to rub the lamp, and the little genie's going to come out like you see on cartoons. And this is a church genie. They're better than regular genies. You don't get three wishes. You get five wishes. And I could say, here's what we're going to do. This is a democracy. We're going to vote. And you're going to write down the top five things you want to change about our church. Five things. And then we're going to tabulate all the results. We're going to take the results to the genie and we're going to rattle them off one, two, three, four, five, all the things we want to change about our church. I want you to think about what you would put on that list. Some of you are shaking your head and you're like, I wouldn't change anything. This is the perfect church. Everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. And I'm like, no, you're a liar. You're crazy. Something you would want to change. If it's really hard for you to do this thought experiment, just pretend you go to a different church. Okay, pretend you go across the street or across town. You say, okay, if I was a member of this church, what would I write down on my list? Or think about people you know who go to a church and they say, I don't like this, I don't like this, I would change this, I would change that. I'm about to give you five answers. I don't think this is scientific, but I think this is right. I think this is the top five that people would change in their church. I think the number one thing would be numerical growth. Americans are pragmatists. Americans think bigger is better. And so I think if you just popped off to a bunch of people and said, what do you want to change about your church? I think big churches would say, we want more people. And I think little bitty tiny struggling churches would say, we need more people. I think that would be high on the list of what people would ask the church genie for. I think people would talk about money. We need more money. I'm just telling you, I think that would make the list because I have friends who are pastors And I have friends and I know people who go to churches other than Emmanuel. And I talk to them and they talk to me about church. The Lord has been very kind to our church over the last two years in terms of finances. And our people have been very faithful. You've been very faithful to give. Our finance team is working on our budget right now. And we have funds. We're not lacking funds. But a lot of churches are. And they're in a difficult spot. And there's a tendency not only to rely on big numbers, but to say if we just had a little more money, some of these things we're struggling with would be easier. I think people would talk about better facilities. 
Maybe that's a, a different location. We don't want to be on this side of town. We want to be on that side of town. Maybe that's we need a bigger, better, more updated room. We need a fancier sound system. We need a gym with uh, all sorts of stuff for the kids to do. We need a better this. We need a better that. You fill in the blank. But I think facilities, a lot of people would say, if only we had better facilities. I think a big one, I might have ranked this one too low as I've been thinking about it this morning. I think this number four, nostalgia, might deserve to be higher up on the list. All I mean by nostalgia is something that you experienced previously in church life, a program, a preacher, a pastor, a musical style, a building, whatever. Something from your church past that you miss and you long for that you say, man, I wish I could bring that thing or that experience back. I think that would be high on a lot of people's lists. And then lastly, I think a different preacher. I think a lot of people think in their mind, if only we could get rid of this guy and swap that guy, whatever. And I'm not saying that I I think that here. I hope that's not true here. I hope you're saying, oh my goodness, no. But I'm just saying, I have friends who are pastors and I talk to people who go to other churches. And a lot of times there's the thought of, you know, I've been listening to this guy on the internet who preaches at this big, huge church out and wherever, and if only we had a guy who could preach like that, then all the other things we're dealing with and struggling with the church would be better. So a lot of times people think we just need to make that one change. I think that's my top five. Now, some of my friends in the first service sent me text messages, and they told me, they said, well, you forgot this, and you forgot this. And they sent me some pretty good stuff, but I do not think any of them belong in the top five. I think this would be the top five for most people in the United States. We need more people. We need more money. We need bigger or better buildings. We want to bring back this thing or this one experience that we used to have back in the day. Or we need some sort of change in terms of leadership. The question is... For Paul, as he is struggling and agonizing for the churches that he's responsible for, the ones that he started and the ones that he sent people out to start, what's his list? What are the five? I picked five because I think Paul has five things here. And I just want you to see what Paul's list is. Why is he struggling What did he want to see happen in the churches of the Lycus Valley? Number one, he wanted them to be encouraged. Encouraged. Verse two. He says, I'm struggling, verse one. Why? Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged. I think Paul was a realist and he'd been in enough churches and enough places to know that church is often discouraging. My guess is if you've been in church any length of time, you have had some discouraging experiences in church. I have. I think it's pretty common. I think we can look at some cultural reasons for that, both in history. You look at the the cultural climate around the church in Colossae. It was very pagan. It was not friendly to Christianity. You can look at our cultural climate and you can see some very striking similarities today. I think you can look outside and find reasons to be discouraged, but I think you can also look inside and find reasons to be discouraged. Here's the ultimate truth. Paul knew it, and you should know it, and I should know it. We're all sinful people. 
You take a bunch of sinful people and you put them together and you say, look, now you're one big happy church family. It's kind of like getting the car loaded up to go on a road trip and you throw the kids in the back seat and you say, hey, y'all are family. Act like it. No crossing the seatbelt line. No staring at each other. Don't mimic each other and copy each other. And you go down the list. You get five miles down the road and parents are very discouraged. That's sort of church life. I mean, we're a bunch of sinful people. Here we are in one big happy church family. We don't always agree on things. We don't always handle things the best way. We don't always treat each other as kindly as we could treat each other. We're a bunch of sinful people and we're here together in a church in a fallen sinful world And if you listen to what Paul said to the church in Ephesus, as a bunch of sinful people united together in one church family, we are wrestling against the principalities and the powers in the spiritual places. Add all that together, church can be discouraging, and Paul knew it. And at the top of his list wasn't more people, more money, better building, that one thing from the past that you miss so bad. Right out of the gate, he says, I want them to be encouraged, not discouraged. Secondly, Paul wanted these churches to be unified. He wanted them to have unity. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Some translations say being joined together. In love. Some just say being unified. And all of them, what you need to understand in verse 2 is that that being knit together, being knit, it's a passive verb. God is the one who does the unifying. God is the one who does the knitting. God is the one who does the, the joining together. We're the ones who are naturally divided, and God is the one who can unite his people. It's a passive verb. God does the uniting. You know as well as I do, unity is hard. It's hard. It's hard in our society right now. We live in a very fractured, very divided, very polarized society. And not to be a downer or a pessimist, but because of the underlying worldview issues that are causing some of these fractures in our society, there's not a lot of hope that we're going to experience any true unity at any point in the near future. We're divided. You need to know and I need to know that when you live in a society that is polarized and fractured, we tend to breathe that air day in and day out. Then we come into a place like this. Guess what? It just sort of becomes second nature to do the same thing, to divide, to team up, to take sides, to not be united. It's just sort of default mode for us. You add some some outside factors to that. You add that during all of the COVID stuff, there was a time when we all just sort of siloed up and lived individually. I mean, we just sort of did our own thing. We didn't have to worry about each other. We could just sit on the couch in our pajamas and watch the service. At least some of us could. But now you're here and you got to sit by that person down the row who sings too loud. They weren't there in your living room. Kind of annoying. 
We get on social media and there's algorithms that help us filter out people that we don't want to listen to and we don't agree with. Like those of you who are going to comment on Facebook later and tag me, struggle is real, there's a simple algorithm for that. I hit one button and you're out of my life, man. You're gone. Done. Easy. We do that. You don't even have to do it yourself. Facebook will figure it out. Social media will figure it out. The internet will figure it out. The internet listens to you all day long. It's listening, it's paying attention, filtering us, siloing us into groups. It's a fractured society we live in. We walk into this place, it's easy to be divided. Just the fact that we interact digitally. Our staff's reading a book. We talked about this some this last week. We interact digitally. It makes it easier for us to divide than interacting face-to-face. Because you can send me a text this afternoon and you can say, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard. And I can just throw my phone down and I don't have to interact with you. And I can just forget about it and move on. And then when you see me face to face in a week and you say, hey, did you get that text? I just say, no, I did. it didn't come through. I don't know what happened. I mean, digital communication, we interact with each other at our own convenience. And the reality is that other people are often not convenient for us. There are a million things that divide us and make it easy to divide. Some of that's new in terms of technology, but none of it's really new in terms of people. We're sinful people. It's easy for us to be divided. That's default. It takes something miraculous for God's people to actually be united. Paul wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be united. Thirdly and fourthly, he wants them to have assurance, and he wants that assurance to be rooted in understanding and knowledge. Look what he says in verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance. He wants them to have full assurance of their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As your pastor, I want you to have assurance. I want you to know that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have an inheritance in heaven, that you've been qualified for that inheritance. I want you to know that you've been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus is Lord of creation, Lord of redemption, and Lord of your life. I want you to have assurance of those things. But that assurance will never come from your feelings and your emotions and your experiences. And we live in a time and a place where the world says that's the surest test for what's true, is how you feel about it, what your experience is. And as your pastor, I'm telling you, that's a terrible way to find assurance. You'll just live on a spiritual roller coaster, up and down. I feel good today. I feel terrible tomorrow. I feel like God loves me today. Oh, he's probably really mad at me today. Up and down, up and down, up and down. It's all based on feeling. I also don't want you to look out You've talked to people over the last couple years, I'm guessing, who have said to you, I've said this to myself and to others, I got to quit watching so much news. Because the more I hear about out there, it's just soul crushing. And I got to get away from that kind of stuff. Some of you, I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to put an age range on this. 
We're just looking around the room. Some of you remember a time in your life when you looked around at society and the society that you were living in, the culture, the place, the time that you were living in, you looked around and people at least outwardly paid lip service to God and the Bible in some sort of Judeo-Christian ethic. What was happening behind closed doors was probably not as good as you remember it being, but at least outwardly, you could look out there and you could say, okay, things are okay. The Colossians did not live in that kind of culture. They looked around and they saw the excesses and the wickedness and the idolatry of Rome, and they thought, oh man, it's bad out there. You, you and I don't live in that place or that time anymore. You look around, you watch the news too much, you set your eyes out there, you're not gonna have a lot of assurance that things are great and that Jesus is supreme and that he's preeminent and he's the Lord of creation. And the, You're gonna look out there and say, oh my goodness. Listen, you can't look inwardly for assurance. You can't let it rely on your emotions. And you can't look outwardly to the culture and the society around you. You're not going to find any there. The only place you can look is to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of redemption. He's the Lord of the church. He's the preeminent one. He's the first place one. And you and I have got to fix our eyes in knowing the truth about Jesus, which brings us to the last thing Paul wanted. Why is he struggling? He's struggling because he wanted these churches to hold to the truth. Their understanding and their knowledge had to be rooted in the truth. The truth about God, the truth about our sinfulness, the truth about the mystery of God, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and his resurrection. You've got to build on that truth on a solid foundation. Why? Verse 4, Colossians 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He did not want them to be deluded. It's the English root, we would say, we don't want them to be delusional. We don't want them to be deceived. We don't want them to be beguiled. We don't want them to be tricked. We don't want them to be led astray. Why? Because people are going to come with plausible arguments. I have said this before. I'm going to say it this morning, and I'll say it again. False teachers do not present themselves to you and identify themselves as false teachers. They do not wear the little white and red name tags that say, Hi, my name is false teacher. They're deluded. They're deceived. They've been beguiled. We'll talk about that more in chapter 2. And they come with plausible arguments. Meaning, you listen to it and you start to think about it for a while and you start to almost talk, your, you say, you know, it kind of makes sense. Like I could almost talk myself into what they're saying. You listen to it enough, you hear it long enough, you let it sort of roll around in your mind. You're like Eve talking to the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that? They're going to come with plausible arguments, and you'd better be grounded in the truth if you don't want to be deluded. Look what Paul says at the end of this passage, verse 5. 
I'm absent in the body, I'm with you in spirit. I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Those two terms, good order and firmness of faith, would literally be used to describe a military unit standing ready to fight. You look at this group of Marines and you say, man, they're at attention. They're in good order. They're armed, they're focused, they know their mission, they're ready. That's what Paul's saying that he wants to see happen in the church in Colossae and by implication the church at Emmanuel. You gotta be in good order. You gotta be firm in your faith. You gotta be like a unit ready to fight for the truth. Now let's be honest. You go through that list. That's a tough list. It's a big ask for any church. And we can go dig around backstage. I don't have a box with the lamp and the genie. I mean, nobody's going to bring the genie out and say, okay, top five, scratch the ones I came up with the first time, and let's go with encouragement. I mean, that's not going to happen. Paul was struggling for these things. He was agonizing for these things. Listen, he wasn't struggling with a pessimistic, grouchy attitude. He was hopeful. He was an optimist. Why? Paul had hope that God's people would experience spiritual growth. Here's the ultimate Sunday school answer, the easiest blank you'll ever fill in. Jesus Christ. He's the mystery at the middle of all of it. He's the last piece of the puzzle that when you put it in place, everything else suddenly gets put into perspective. Everything else suddenly makes sense. Look what he says, Colossians chapter two. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, those who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The mystery of God is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished on the cross for sinners. He's the culmination and the focal point of God's eternal plan of redemption. It all centers around him. He alone is the worthy one to take the scroll that we sang about earlier and to usher in the consummation of history. His life and his death and his resurrection are the ultimate game changer. I want you to know the mystery of God which is Christ. Look what he says down in verse five. I want your faith to be firmly rooted in Christ. The faith of Christian people is not just optimism that it's all gonna be great in the end somehow. The faith of Christian people centers on who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So Paul is toiling and he's struggling and he's agonizing, but he's doing it with hope. He knows the reality of church life. He knows it's not easy. He knows we all have a wish list in our back pocket that we could pull out and say, I could change five things. Well, I have six on the list. But he has hope. As he toils, he he toils with hope. As he struggles, he struggles with hope because he knows Jesus is the mystery of God. You want gospel encouragement, true encouragement? You don't need me to stand up here and flatter you and tell you that you're better than you really are, you need to find your identity in Christ. You want to find unity as a church? 
It's not that we're all sort of in the same profession or we have the same hobby or we like the same football team or we're in the same socioeconomic bracket. That's not where you find real unity. You find real unity in all of us being united to Jesus by faith. We're united to him, the mystery of God. And the result is we find unity with each other. You want assurance? You don't look inwardly and you don't turn on the news you look to the word of God and you read about Jesus, the mystery of God. That's where you find assurance, who Jesus is and what he did to save you, to qualify you for an inheritance in heaven, to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. That's where we look for assurance. Our knowledge and our understanding of the truth is rooted in Jesus, who himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We're grounded in the truth, standing in good order, firm in our faith that is in Jesus Christ. Look, as a church, for these things to become true of us, it's gonna take toil and it's gonna take struggle. Nothing on that list comes naturally or easy to our church or any church. So we just gird up our loins and we say, we're gonna have to struggle for this. We're gonna have to toil for this. We're gonna have to make God's priorities, our priorities. But as we toil and we struggle, we do it as optimists and we do it with hope. Not pessimistic that it's never gonna come about, but optimistic that we know Jesus Christ, the mystery of God.